Hello everyone, my name is Dr. Sanjoy Som. I'm a research scientist here at the Blue Bubble Space Institute of Science, and you're listening to PUBS, our podcast that interviews institute scientists who have recently published their science in leading academic journals. Today, I'm delighted to be interviewing Dr. Jacob Hack-Misra, who has published his work in the current issue of the journal Astrobiology, that is volume 12, number 10 of 2012. His work is entitled An Ecological Compass for Planetary Engineering. Welcome, Jacob. Thanks, Anjoy. So you have two buzzwords here, um, ecological compass and planetary engineering. So let's start with the last one. What do you exactly mean by planetary engineering? So planetary engineering is sort of a broad term to mean anything that humans might do to technologically modify a planet, you know, usually Earth, but we might talk about Mars or Venus as well, um, on a large global scale. And we're actually talking about this today in the context of present-day global warming, and we use the word geoengineering. That is, could we transform the Earth on a global scale to counteract some of the negative effects, negative effects of global warming? If we think about Mars in sort of an astrobiological sense, this idea of planetary engineering has come up using the word terraforming, which is, could we take Mars, which is kind of a cold and barren land from, an, from a human perspective anyway, could we transform it into something a little bit more uh, habitable for Earth life? And so planetary engineering is just a broad term for anything we might do to a planet like that. I see. And this, uh, of course, has many ethical considerations. I mean, are we morally okay to modify you know, four billion years of evolution. But we'll get there. <laughs> First, I want to talk about uh, your concept of an ecological compass. So if I understand it correctly, it's kind of a two-axis graphical tool for ethical considerations that help guide thoughts on planetary engineering. Is that right? That's right. And um, I'll tell you a little bit about the motivation of that. The, there's the two axes. One of them is about value. The, the vertical axis goes from intrinsic value to instrumental value. And we can talk about that in a second. But a lot of the motivation for this paper is that horizontal axis, which is, I call it the biospheric spectrum. Yeah, I've never, never heard that before. That's awesome. <laughs> no, I, I made that up. So, you know, you can take it or leave it. I also made up the term ecological compass. So That's you great. can kind of... You can do that in philosophy, make up some terms, and maybe people like them, maybe they don't. But so, yeah, this, this spectrum I constructed, and it took a little bit of thought because I tried – there's always a danger of becoming anthropocentric and thinking humans are the pinnacle of evolution, which I don't think we are. Um, but I think if you consider intelligence in terms of cognitive capacities or something, there is evidence that humans can do some of those things you know, better than any other Earth life, but perhaps not better than extraterrestrial life. So the, the axis I ended up coming up with goes from intelligence on the right-hand side to space on the left-hand side. And that takes you from intelligent life, like humans or apes or dolphins, to macroscopic life. And then when you cross the axis, it goes to microscopic life. And then what I call abiotic systems, you know, DNA and planets and molecules and, and things like that. And so, as I said, the motivation was reading a lot of philosophers who talk about the value of life. And there's sort of an underappreciation among philosophers, I noticed, for the true diversity of life that I've learned through astrobiology. Um, the microscopic 
community is is basically life on this planet from a genetic diversity viewpoint. And um, there's sort of a tendency to value big things that we can see and to discount small things that we can't see um, among the public, but also among philosophers who may not have an appreciation for uh, the diversity of, of life on Earth. So part of this axis was to really break apart, look, here's what life is on Earth. The microscopic community is huge. We at least have to ask the question about value for that. And, and that was a lot of the motivation, reading the philosophers and getting frustrated that they weren't internalizing the astrobiology like they could be. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. So uh, the east-west line is, is essentially that biological spectrum. And anything north of that is intrinsic value, and anything south of that is instrumental value. Could you help us understand the difference between the two? Sure. Um, so we'll start with intrinsic value, or sometimes it's called inherent value. And that's to say that something is valuable for itself. And many people, although not all people, but many people think humans are intrinsically valuable, that, that a human being is has value just because it's a human being, solely by virtue of being human, not because it can be an architect or go paint or, or, or you know, earn a living or raise a family, just because it's a human being, it's valuable. Some people disagree with that, but, you know, that may be a common belief. Um, it's maybe less common to believe that a tree has intrinsic value. You know, does a, is a tree valuable simply by virtue of being a tree uh, because the, the, the contrast to that would be the instrumental value component. Many people say a tree is valuable so much as it can provide something for mo usually humans. And, you know, oftentimes we'd value a tree based on its capability for uh, producing lumber if you're a logger. But if you're a hiker, maybe a tree is valuable because you just get to hike around it. And so that's kind of the contrast is are we valuing something because of its use as an instrument, instrumental value, be, you know, because it has monetary um, you know, capabilities, because it provides income um, or, or some other form of utility um, compared with being valuable for its own sake. I see. So one can map different thoughts of whether something on the biological spec spectrum is more intrinsic or instrumental, right? That's exactly right. And so what does this ecological compass help us to do in terms of this planetary engineering concept? So it just highlights how our decisions toward planetary engineering, um, as well as other ethical issues in the environment, but I, I didn't get into that. Um, just w with regard to planetary engineering, it says depending on what kind of ethical framework we adopt, and you can express that on the compass, it may lead us to different conclusions. So, for example, if you place intrinsic value only on humans, but instrumental value on everything else, which I've called anthropocentrism, then you may have no problem terraforming Mars, because Mars, as far as we know it, has no microscopic life, but even if it does, that wouldn't really matter to an anthropocentrist. Um, what's important is advancing the overall value of humans. And so it would probably be better to have more humans on Mars because now there's a greater number of humans and therefore more intrinsic value. Likewise, we're also taking Mars, which is a barren planet, and putting humans on it, which is maybe in taking advantage of, of 
Mars better. However, if you're a, a cosmocentrist, which I said assigns intrinsic value to everything, you would say, like, well, wait a minute, Mars has value just because it's Mars. It doesn't matter if there's human settlements on it or not. It, it's intrinsically valuable because it's gone through, you know, four billion years of evolutionary history. It may have clues to the origin of life. It may have inter interesting geological features. It may just be beautiful from an aesthetic point of view. Maybe we should think twice about meddling with it because we would be devaluing Mars. So those are very two divergent viewpoints that lead to different conclusions about what we should or should not do. And maybe there is some common ground if we're talking about geoengineering, which is perhaps more uh, in the near future. Um, and so I, I've sort of developed this tool as just a way to uh, highlight those differences a little bit better. You're saying, well, you value people, but we value big animals. And can we find common ground or do we really have divergent conclusions we reach because of our, our assumptions? Thank you. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, I would like to steer the conversation towards climate engineering because that's a hot topic, uh, especially yes. now in this uh, month of uh, October where we had some uh, incredible weather patterns and some people have been talking about it being a consequence of climate change. How would your tool navigate the conversation? Because it is a, it's a dicey one, right? <laughs> it's very dicey. and um, So I guess the first thing I'll say is as far as microscopic organisms go, they're very resilient, and there's a pretty low likelihood that we're really going to have a strong impact on microscopic organisms from uh, anthropogenic climate change or even responding with geoengineering. But there's a very high likelihood that we'll impact humans. I mean, climate change is affecting humans. Climate engineering will affect some humans, even if we offset some of the negative warming effects. Uh, you can't have a perfect climate engineering scheme that perfectly offsets everything and leaves no undesirable consequences for anyone. So no matter what we do, it's going to cause some problems for humans, certainly going to cause some problems for other mammals and uh, marine organisms. Whether or not we choose to value those, we have to at least ask that question. And then there's, there's the, also the question on the other end of the axis, um, the biospheric spectrum, is it right or not to do this kind of thing to the planet? We're not going to harm microscopic organisms, but we are going to change the planet on a global scale. And, you know, some people may not care, but some people just have a fundamental gut reaction saying like, well, I don't know if that's really right. And I, I think we need to ask that question, too, before we engage in any sort of uh, climate engineering. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, no solution will be adequate for everybody. Some, some climate solution that help us might be detrimental for, for other species. And how do we make that judgment is based on the, the framework, I guess, to guide the thought on the discussion that you have built. In terms of human exploration, so obviously uh, we're not going to stay on Earth forever. Does your tool help us think about uh, the ethics of exploring space as, as a human species? Sure, it certainly does, and um, there's a couple of, of ways we, we can think about that. One, one is planetary protection. NASA has an Office of Planetary Protection, and, and that's one of the areas where space exploration and ethics kind of converge, mainly that we could tra accidentally transmit Earth life onto another ecosystem, and that might then contaminate another you know, 
biological species that's living there. We think about this as in human exploration of Mars. We very carefully sterilize all spacecraft that uh, leave Earth. But the reality is you can never get perfect sterilization. And so you just have to have some minimum threshold that you're satisfied with. So there are microbes on Mars, but they tend to uh, die once they leave the actual spacecraft. So there may be some that are surviving inside, like the, in the circuitry, but if they ever actually reach the surface of Mars, they'll die. But that's at least an important consideration, because if we're exploring habitats that could potentially support life, or maybe did at one point in the past, it's very critical to uh, decide how we should or should not interact with those for contamination reasons or historic reasons. Yeah, so this highlights the fact that space exploration is not just an engineering and scientific pursuit. It has a lot of moral implications as well. And so I would like to invite you to read the last paragraph of your paper because I think it would be a beautiful way to close this interview. Of course. Human space exploration also highlights the need to consider the value given to the cosmos. Even if humans only consider the instrumental value of the resources of space, there are still some important ethical issues to be resolved if human space exploration is to be a peaceful, beneficial, and cost-effective venture. However, perhaps the greatest uncertainty lies in how humans intrinsically value the cosmos, whether for its aesthetic beauty, its unending mystery, or its potential for possibility. It may be difficult to quantify the value of an unobstructed view of the cosmos, but as human civilization continues exploration into space, perhaps the ceaseless discoveries will allow humanity to view its own planet with the wonder and humility that strikes when gazing up at the night sky. Jacob, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks a lot, Sanjoy. It was a great conversation. Thank you.